Welcome back, world traveling, Chris. Oh, man, I was up for like I don't know thirty some hours last or yesterday um, because we got up. Well, we went to bed late, you know, like usual, and then we had to get up at like two thirty in the morning to drive from uh, Wittenberg in Germany to Berlin for our flight, and then our flight, you know, back home. Once we got to O'Hare was like delayed and oh my God, I was just so tired last night. So yeah, it was a, it was a fun trip to Germany. We went from like Frankfurt to a bunch of small towns and stuff and toured some castles and cool things. And then, uh, went to Berlin for a bit and it was fun, but man, it was a long, like, I don't know. I think it was like seven days there and a couple days of traveling just because it's like seven hours difference it's traveling ends up taking the entire day (laughs) when did you get back to st louis uh this morning i drove back from i stayed at my parents last night um because it was closer to the airport we were leaving from so gotcha yeah it was a long long trip but it was fun are you jet lagged not really. I think mostly because we were, I mean, usually you just don't want to sleep on the plane. If you can stay up the whole time, then, you know, it's just like one long day and you you sleep whenever it is normal time in wherever you're arriving at. And then that kind of fixes it. You don't have too much jet lag. So I don't feel bad today. We'll see about this afternoon. I might be wanting a nap, but yeah. How have you been? I'm good. I, uh, was able to walk last week for the first time without a boot or crutches. Oh man, I forgot you were still still in crutches. And so how how's that going? It's good. So I finally like I had like four or five doctor's appointments between like May and June. Apparently, like so I have a bone spur and Ooh, my mom. I was like it. working out and part of it I guess broke off. Oh, and then like so my foot was swollen and then i had a gout attack because i have a history of gout in the foot and then i got tendonitis and i was like okay do you want us to just cut off your foot (laughs) well i did a walk on it last week and then this week it hurts again so i'm back in the boot it's all right did they give you the advice of so when my mom had bone spurs in her foot they gave her the advice of drinking um, tart cherry juice and that would like break it down um, like naturally. I mean, I guess yours huh. broke off. So, Well, well I think it's still there. I think it's just like a small piece of it broke. Mm, okay. uh, but yeah, so I like that's what they tell a lot of people with gout. I guess it maybe oh. just helps with inflammation. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have uh, like cherry supplements and like I eat cherries. And I don't know. <laughs> the other cool. thing, I, the other thing I can do is like take control of my health, which would solve mm-hmm. a lot of this. But well, I mean, it's still hard though. Like, I don't think I. I don't know if there's something dietary or whatever that causes the bone spurs. But like, you don't. We don't normally eat a lot of cherries, so it's not something <laughs> that naturally would just like, you know, be fixed because of that or whatever. But yeah, that that was. I thought that was like really interesting to find out that like, Oh, just eat a bunch of cherries and specifically right. like tart cherries and then it'll go away. <laughs> I was like, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. The problem I have, so I'm not, I don't know anything about like health, but supposedly bone spurs like form out of arthritis and I have like gout is like arthritis and the reason I have gout is because like my uric acid level is high and my uric acid level is probably high because of how poorly I eat. And so Fun. It's, like a, it's the, it's like the, uh, you know, when someone deletes a node module and then, uh, you know, a bunch of things fall out after that, just like that, <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> it's like, uh, updating the stripe gym from one to four. And stripe. <laughs> Stripe Ruby Mock breaks and oh yeah, domino effect. Yeah, I, yeah, that's an annoying one. And then, and then Stripe's API has changed so much that 
what it's it's kind of hard to keep up with all that. I have to re-record my payments course again to do the the new um, strong, yeah strong customer authentication stuff, which I'm not looking forward to. But it doesn't look like it's too bad. But so, Stripe Stripe went from this thing that I thought was easy to now like it takes a lot of work to implement Stripe and do it properly. Like it's not simple unless you use the hosted stuff. It's not as simple as it used to be. That's actually what I've been working on the last like three or four weeks. Oh, fun. So it doesn't sound like it's very quick then. <laughs> well, so sorry. SCA is not the problem. I had to go up several versions of Stripe API, yeah. which actually wasn't that bad. Um, we had some issues with Stripe Ruby mock, which I know they're like looking for maintainers. So like I w- I'm not like faulting them, but it, it was a little difficult because to upgrade our Stripe gym version that broke the Stripe Ruby mock version. So those both had to come up to like the latest and also the API had to come up to the latest. And so I think I finally got it working, but now I'm on SCA and before like we did charges and now we're doing payment intents and mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i don't know some of me thinks that just using vcr or something would be better for uh testing than stripe ruby mock because i've ran into the same thing it's just i mean they're trying to recreate stripe you know with that gem and it's like wow good luck with that like it's a lot of work yeah, faking that correctly, especially when people are trying to test like specific details of the API, like good luck, you know, yeah. it's just not, not something you can reasonably uh, do because then you have to basically go clone Stripe, which is already a massive kind of API endpoint. So yeah, I don't know. It might be something I'll switch over to just using VCR for from now on or something. Um, cause we have to do that anyways for, uh, brain tree integration and, and p- the page M. So might be easy to just use the two together. Yeah. I tried VCR. We had some factories that were reliant on Stripe Ruby mock. And so when I took those out or when I took Stripe Ruby mock out, basically for like every test, it had to make a strike request. <laughs> and so I was like, I've got to find a middle ground here. So I ended up just kind of massaging Stripe Ruby mock to do what <laughs> I need to do, which wasn't ideal, but it was better than like trying to fix thousands of tests. Yeah. This is one of those cases where you're kind of like, I wish that, you know, like it's kind of, it's, it's good to have something that can run like a test suite that can run entirely offline. But at some point you're kind of like, what if we just let it run against the Stripe test API, you know, <laughs> and like yeah. their that, uptime is good. It might be a little bit slower because you're hitting a real API, but also you would know for sure that it worked all the time, every time. I think that's what VCR is good at because like, my thought is next time, like if you run it a Stripe suite against a Stripe API once and then the version updates and you just like throw away the cassettes and rerun it, you know that like this is actually what Stripe is going to give me. Yeah. Versus but, like, but you still run into that problem of like if those are ever outdated because there's a new Stripe API. You know, that's change. what I'm saying. Uh, you know, when you, you go to like that. update you just throw away the cassettes and rerun the live ones to re-record the cassettes. Yeah, but you don't know that until production breaks because your tests are running against fake responses. So, you know, it's one of those things that it's kind of like, it'd be nice just to hit everything and like hit their real API and never use VCR or anything else. And you might have a slightly slower test suite because of it, but you would know 100% of the time it was, you know, working with, with Stripe correctly. I think the good thing about Stripe, unlike most other APIs, is it's versioned pretty well so that, you know, you you have a button to click and say, I want to upgrade my version. Um, Whereas most APIs are like, well, just change the URL you're using to, you know, from V1 to V2 and then change a bunch of stuff. So you have to update your code versus like, 
what's cool about Stripe is like the gem is written well enough so that it can run against, I think, any of the versions of their API and it their back end is kind of handling the translations of, you know, old data parameters or whatever might be coming through um, and, and handling it all kind of on their end, which that's, you know, like there's a lot of people talking about GraphQL and everything else, but I'm like, honestly, Stripe's API is the one everybody should probably be looking at for, you know, inspiration because it's just like the versioning and all of that stuff is done super duper well. And I mean, unless you're building something that needs to do lots of batch operations, GraphQL doesn't really do anything for you aside from, you know, letting you do a few things in one request. Um, you can still build your, you know, RESTful JSON API to return back specific subsets of data or whatever. Um, so it's, you know, I, I really like the Stripe API as kind of a inspiration, but they put some, I mean, that's their entire business. They've put so much effort into making that, you know, easy to use. Um, so I think the, the Stripe API, like how you can just increase your API version, like in a initializer mm-hmm. is how like you can do it with VCR because like, if I'm on like 2019 0101 and like I don't have any cassettes and I record, I know that like everything within 2019 one one is recorded correctly. And then in my like gym, in my initializer, if I say like, let's go to 2019 201, I can just delete all the cassettes and rerun against a live API and know that like this data is what 2019 201 gave back. And so if my tests fail, I know there's actually a problem with my code versus I have a bunch of like Stripe mocks that I don't know if those are correct or not right, because right. like, and is the, it the API changed or is it that Stripe mock just doesn't know about it? Yeah. They do a really good job with the incremental changes on their end. Um, and I really like the ability for you to like upgrade to the new API version in and kind of leave the old one available for like six hours or something. So like your yeah. production code still works and you have like six hours to deploy I, the I new think code to 36 hours. Did they? I mean, it makes sense. Like a, a window of time is just the, the valuable piece there. You don't want it yeah, so if too you, long, but you don't want it too short either. So yeah. sure makes a nice, um, you know, nice, Nice way of doing those upgrades. Last Stripe thing before we move on. SCA is awesome for like from a consumer standpoint. I'm like, man, I wish we had that here um, in the States. Mm -hmm. But it's like making my brain explode in terms of like checkout flow. (laughs) Because... It's just uh, the way like our checkout works for like our creators. The way they like want you to do, it, I guess, is like in an e the automatic way. I use air quotes here, is that you make a request to create a payment intent, and then the customer goes like you mark your order as complete, but you don't fulfill it. So then the customer like gets a response whether they need to authenticate or not on the client side. And then Stripe sends you a webhook <clears throat> to fulfill the order, which I think works really well in like a physical like e-commerce setting. And maybe it works for like digital goods, but that's not really the way like our checkout's designed to work. Like we kind of like know immediately if it failed. And if like the payment failed, then like we don't fulfill the order. Mm-hmm. So right. that's been- Yeah, that's one of the things I'm gonna have to deal with for for GoRails and Jumpstart Pro and stuff and and whatever because typically with subscriptions like when you click checkout it charges you immediately and if you don't actually have the webhook come through or or, you know you don't immediately know whether or not it was successful then you're just kind of in this weird state of like well we started to process your card we don't really know if it worked or not and uh you know you'll have to do some polling or something reliable to 
you know, wait for the webhook to come through. So you may have to record your payment intents or something in the database to keep track of the status of those. You know, maybe it's you're keeping track of invoices or something. Um, yeah, it'll be definitely a change. But I think that some of their JavaScript stuff, like if you use the checkout button, still does it kind of all in one. Um, and their hosted checkout pages too may do that as well. So, yeah, yeah, we use we use Elements and like it handles all the SCA stuff, which is nice. There is a manual process, which is what I'm looking at, and it just requires a couple of extra trips to your server. So it won't like essentially like you create the payment intent and then you give back the ID. And then what you do is you don't automatically like confirm the payment. So it's like the payment intents in this like pending status. And so then you can take that. There's a method like confirm on it and that will actually charge it. And so that's kind of the route I'm exploring right now is to maybe bypass like all the web hooks and polling for checkout. Mm, okay and kind of keep at least right at least right now kind of keep the same checkout flow we have so we don't have to like rewrite yeah i man i was like sad when i was reading some of the docs and it was like (laughs) um you know here's a bunch of stuff but also wait until july 1st or something because we're still waiting on some other changes that (laughs) recently came through and we need to implement those and i was like good lord like this is just going to give most people July and August or whatever uh, to to build, you know, or to rewrite their probably most of their integration with Stripe um, and retest it and everything. And I was like, that's not a whole lot of time for some of these bigger, you know, more complex products. So yeah, uh, yeah. once and, you like, once you wrap your head around it, it's not so bad. Um, at least like for a company our size, like I'm the only one on the project and I don't think it'll take me that long now that I understand payment intents, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't think it'll be too bad, but it's like the first time you implement Stripe, you have no idea like the flow of things. And so you really are trying to learn that and equivalent code for every step. And once you understand it, then it's not so bad, but that's like, you know, kind of the intent of my payments course was just to help you understand the whole flow of things. Cause it sure took me a long time to like, I kind of get it when I read the Stripe docs, but I kind of don't. And, you know, seeing a full integration really kind of helps. Yeah. Ernesto, are you here? Hey guys. Yeah. I'm here. <laughs> Sorry. We, we yeah, way went off the path. Yes, we don't usually have such a long intro to, uh, you know, a guest episode. So welcome, <laughs> Ernesto. <laughs> hey, it's great to be here. I am learning so much just from listening to you guys. Uh, I mean, I've heard about SCA, but uh, just to, to hear Jason talk about it and, uh, yeah, mention the struggles is super interesting. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like I said, I think it's going to be, like, great. It's just got to learn how to get there so yeah I wonder, if, I wonder if the u.s will adopt something like that in 10 years <laughs> yeah we're like on our deathbeds and we get sca oh finally i can have two factor <laughs> for payments yeah I, I can pay for my hospital death with <laughs> you won't be able to afford it by then <laughs> ernesto thanks for joining us uh real quick you mind just giving a quick introduction uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'm Ernesto Tackworker. I'm the founder of Ombu Labs and FastRuby.io. Um, and I I met Jason, I think it's almost three years ago at Southeast Ruby, uh, in, which, in, in which I also met Chris. Uh, and I think it was the first time I was speaking in a Ruby conference in the U.S. So uh, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and so happy to be here. We're glad to have you. Um, yeah, I remember meeting you at that first Southeast Ruby. That was a, it was a good time. I had a lot of fun and I guess we'll be right back at the conference in, I don't know, two weeks. Yeah, something it's like, like that. 16 days away the day we're recording this. Of course, when this comes out, it'll be like 
six days. So mm, yeah, close. <laughs> yeah. Mode. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Um, so Ernesto, how did you get into programming and then eventually make your way into Ruby? Uh, sure. Yeah. The, um, I guess it's a pretty boring story, so <laughs> we're probably going <laughs> to move on from this pretty quickly. But uh, I I first started working with computers or like playing with computers actually with a talent computer. I don't know if that was a thing here in the US, but in Argentina, uh, that was what we could get our hands on. And I remember just playing with, with that computer, but uh, I never got to the chance the chance to program any code in that computer. Um, so I, I went to school for software engineering in Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina. And I think the first time I wrote a, a line of code was when I was 18 or, or 19 in, in school. I never explored by myself. I never had the, the interest of, to just like start programming by myself. I actually went to software engineering school and learned about algorithms and all that fun stuff. And uh, the first programming language we used was um, Pascal. So that kind of gives you gives you an idea of how old I am. But I'm not that old. I think the... <laughs> I think the university's program was a little old and they were still using Pascal when I was starting. Yeah, um, most of them are fairly outdated anyways. Um, but I don't think I ever did any Pascal, but I remember like tons of people were talking about it and I always wanted to, but it was like, I didn't know how to begin learning it back then. So I never did. Um, what made you choose uh, computer science when you were in school? Um, I think uh, it was uh, it's different in Argentina. I'm, I'm originally from from over there. I moved to Philadelphia about three years ago. But um, in Argentina, you, you know, you come out of high school and you have to pick your career when you're 17 or 18. So. I knew I liked computers. I knew there was a future with computers and programming, and I knew that the salaries were good. So I guess at 18, I was like, well, you know, I like to work with computers. I like to play with computers. So I might as well just pick this, which looks like a, a good path to be on and to have like a, a steady in, you know, stream of income at some point in the future. So I guess at 18, I was already thinking about like, okay, like, am I going to study something that's going to give me, uh, you know, work opportunities or, or not? Um, so, so yeah, that's why I'm saying it's like pretty boring. It's like the 18 year old <laughs> who was thinking about like getting a job after college. No, it makes sense. It's like, you know, a, it's a wise move at that age because, I mean, there's there's a lot of times where you're like, oh, I want to go into art. And then it's like, well, what what about after college? How are you going to get a job then? You know, and it's like, well, uh, maybe not the wisest decision then. It's probably the most pragmatic of uh, pragmatic one I've heard, though, because like I just like toyed around for like six or seven years in college, like changing majors. And then like found computer science because I got passionate about web development. And so it's kind of, I don't know, I kind of appreciate hearing you're like, yeah, this sounds good. Uh, I can make some money. Let's go. Yeah. And uh, when I got into school, I thought, okay, well, I, I'm going to need to know how to program and I'm going to have to enjoy programming and all. But uh, I met a lot of friends who were studying software engineering that ended up in non-coding positions like analysts or project managers or QA analysts. So um, I usually recommend uh, studying or getting into a bootcamp for anyone who is uh, who's interested in interested in computers or in switching careers because you know you can study and go to a bootcamp and study programming. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be a programmer after you come out of the boot camp. You might, you know, be better managing teams and managing projects and having an understanding of some of the code that runs uh, will definitely give you an edge when you want to seek like a project management position. Mm -hmm. 
So, so what? Um, so after school, what did you get a job uh, programming right away, or what was that like? Uh, oh, I guess this is a kind of a funny story. So as you know by now, my last name is Tack Worker, uh, which in German just means like day worker. But uh, my first job was as a tagger. So a guy who would just like sit down in a computer and tag legal documents for uh, LexisNexis, so like legal documents. So I was officially a tagger uh, or a you know data entry uh, working on basically classifying legal documents and making sure that uh, they had all the laws tagged in every single you know court ruling. Um, but yeah, that that was my first job, and I guess I started programming there a little bit. It wasn't you know a position where I would program full time. It was more like okay, you do data entry, and with my team, we found out ways to use Visual Basic script and Microsoft Word to make our job a lot easier and a lot faster. So I guess that was the first time I ever programmed something for in work. Uh, and eventually I did find like a Java developer position uh, when I was maybe four years into my career. That's cool. I, I like the like, you know, I think a lot of people end up kind of getting into programming from something practical like Excel or, or whatever, where they're just like, uh, why am I doing this, you know, thousand times over and over again? Like surely the computer can do this for me. And then you kind of discover you know, that you can do a little bit of programming to make that possible. Um, so you got into Java, then h- how did you get into Ruby? Yeah, so um, that was back when I started my first company with a, a couple of friends from school. Um, we had a client lined up and our client was interested in either using Django or Rails. So we did some analysis at the time and we're talking about like 2008 to 2009. And back then, the Rails community looked a lot more interesting and more active than the Django community. So we decided to go with Rails. Um, We had no experience with Rails at the time. We had some experience with Java and with .NET and C Sharp and all that. And um, yeah, we just decided to go with Rails and uh, we haven't looked back. I have to admit it was hard to come from like a Java software engineer position to Rails and to be like, uh, where is my XML configuration? Like where where do I need to configure all these things? <laughs> you know, I was like, what's going on? I had no idea what, what I was getting myself into. Yeah, I, I had the same experience because I started with Python and then got into Django and then coming to Ruby and Rails was like, where's the import statements? Like I see some requires here and there, but they're kind of like random and most files in a Rails app don't have any. So like, what is going on, you know? And that was like a weird, you know, change to to see, because the most of the time, at the time, the understanding was just like, oh, Python and Ruby are very similar. They look, you know, about the same. So they must, you know, work the same. And I got a job doing Rails after Django and I was like, they look the same sort of, but they definitely don't operate the same way. Like there's different philosophies here. And that took me a long time to kind of get comfortable with Ruby just because it was like, you know, more, at least the Rails philosophy of convention over configuration, like was just so kind of different. I hadn't experienced that before. And that, that was certainly a, a barrier that I had when I, when I started. Yeah. How about you, Jason? Yeah. So I started trying to teach myself PHP. Well, I was doing like Java in school and I took like the worst approach into programming. Uh, when I was doing my PHP, like I was just like, I want, I know that a database exists and I know that there is code to, interact with it. So I was like writing these like PHP files that 
had database calls in them and were just spinning them out like in the same file. And then I was like, this can't be like how everybody does it. And so I started looking at PHP frameworks um, and Laravel had just come out. It was like version two. So like people weren't necessarily like talking a lot about it. And then, but there's a lot of stuff on rails. And then I was like, Ruby kind of fits. And then here I am. So I do know, I never did any Java professionally just in school. Cool. Yeah, I uh, I mean, I didn't mean to complain about Java in terms of like the XML. Like I, uh, I, I think Java has a lot of great things and I think every programming language has a great things. Um, but yeah, before Ruby, I did even some PHP and uh, they were not using Laravel at all. And they were just putting everything into one single file. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this what PHP is like? And it's funny how we get like ideas from a programming language just from our limited experience with some projects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think I know like PHP early's PHP's early days were kind of rough, but I think it gets kind of a bad rap. I think it's a pretty like good modern language. Uh, like I like using Ruby more, but especially things like Laravel and I've never used uh, the other like. I think Symfony is one of the other frameworks, but like Com- Composer is like the package manager and it's, it's good. So yeah, Java, Java, I never had any real experience to know to like complain or not. Um, but I just know that at least starting off, like the, not the dynamic languages like PHP and Ruby kind of fit my like small knowledge of programming better starting out. Yeah, and to be honest, like I got into scripting languages through Java, through the JVM. I think the first uh, Python I saw was actually Jython, so Python over the or on top of the JVM. Um, so I think it was it was a great language to to work with and to learn things, um, and definitely a great language to start with as a you know, beginner programmer. It was nice to have the compiler there to tell you like, no, you're going to call a method on this class and it doesn't exist. So it would like be another, uh, you know, constant feedback loop that I would get. Uh, Ernesto, what are, so, so you started working on a company with your friends. What, what led you to that and kind of running your own business now? Yeah, I guess uh, right out of college, I wanted to keep in touch with my friends and we had ideas about starting products and stuff. And we're, we're like, well, should we start a product or should we just you know build software for other people? It might be easier to do consulting, to get clients, to basically hire us to write software for them. And on the side, we can work on our own products. Um, so that's how I started my first consulting company. Um, which is not Ombu Labs. Ombu Labs is my second consulting company. I uh, I, in, I ended up leaving my first company because there were main differences with my partners. We were we were six different partners, and I just felt like there were too many things that we were trying to do. So I was interested in Ruby, Rails, and and some JavaScript at the time, and I thought that was the the languages we should have focused on. So what I did is I left my first company and I started doing freelance Ruby on Rails development. And eventually that turned into Ombu Labs. Uh, I just had so much work, I couldn't do it myself. So I hired a couple software engineers and uh, it's been growing since then. We are about 10 software engineers right now. And we work a lot with startups, uh, Ruby, Rails, and JavaScript. That's cool. How, how was the, you know, hiring your first employees? Did you hire them part-time at the beginning or uh, how did that go? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who have done freelancing, but to actually, yeah, you know, start paying other people is uh, a big step, I feel like. Um, so I'd be curious to hear how that goes. Cause I, I had contemplated doing that at one point, 
but I knew that I didn't really love consulting enough to want to take on that extra burden, but I'm really curious how that goes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think I had uh, something going on. I had a I had a client at the time that was paying me uh, a good rate for a developer based in Argentina, and I thought, wow, this is uh, something that could scale very well if I just hire developers in Argentina, which is where I was living at the time, and try to get more and more work from the United States. Um, another thing that I had going on at the time is uh, we had gotten accepted by Startup Chile. Uh, Startup Chile is a government program in Chile where they basically give you $40,000 just so you can run your business from Chile. Um, so I actually moved to Chile, to Santiago in Chile for about six months. Uh, where I run uh, our product, which was an e-commerce platform. I mean, it still is, uh, but we're focused more on consulting right now. Um, so we run the product for about six months from Chile. And when I came back from from that country to Argentina, I was like, well, I have some money from Startup Chile and I can scale my team. And that was definitely important because it gave me a runway like uh, that it didn't mean that I needed to find the client right away I could have some some cushion to find like the best projects for my developers that's nice because I yeah I think there's there's just often I'm sure you have stories about this but the like consulting ebb and flow of things and when you're working as a freelancer you're kind of probably either in sales mode or in, you know, coding mode and you're either doing work but you're not getting new projects once that's done because you're working on something. So then you have to switch and go do sales and I imagine it makes it a little bit easier for you now, but you probably have to switch more into of a a sales role and then the, you know, the the income goes along with that because you have now people you need to pay all the time that is kind of required to have a pipeline of new work coming in all the time. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, it's known as the feast and famine cycle, and I've definitely been there many, many times. I feel it's gotten a lot better now that we have uh, launched a Ruby on Rails productized service. Uh, where we actually found this problem where startups and companies had a really hard time keeping up to date with rails um, and if you've been long you know if you've been around long enough you know that upgrading a huge application from rails 40 to 51 can be a huge project so what we did is uh, we found ourselves doing this kind of work over and over again and I thought well, how can we package this into a productized service? Um, and that's how FastRuby.io was born. Uh, and that's certainly helped us in terms of addressing this, you know, uh, feast and famine cycle. Like right now, we're not really spending that much in advertising, but we do get a steady stream of leads coming our way who are just interested in upgrading their Rails application without disrupting their current software development team. That's nice. Um, I remember when I was consulting or freelancing, like I had an idea for like a 15K MVP. And, you know, if you had an idea, it would be a flat 15,000. And we would just work to like reduce the scope down to something reasonable for that price just so that people didn't have some super open-ended price point or whatever and it was it felt more productized so i think that's probably much nicer way to make it so that you have something like a little bit more concrete that's marketable i guess versus you know we'll work on anything for you just hire us you know (laughs) so when i think of like building a product i think about like you know, like a one-time thing that you build and then you just sell and sell and sell. With a productized service, you have like a, a niche of something, a service you provide. 
do you do like flat rates for that? Or is it just like, this is a skill, like a, a super hyper-focused service, but it depends on your app? Yeah, it depends on your app. Um, but um, we we rely heavily on test suites. You know, like if we get clients or potential clients who don't have a test suite, we don't take the project. So that gives us some freedom in saying like, we're not going to get into, uh, you know, a tar pit. We're not going to get into a, a dumpster fire project where we're trying to upgrade a project from Rails 4 to 5.1, but there, there's no test suite and we rely heavily on someone doing QA. Um, so yeah, we're, we're very specific as in what clients are, are great clients for us. We usually ask for like 70 to, to 80% test coverage. And in terms of pricing, it depends. Like if teams want to go slow, we can charge by the week, like $4,500 a week. Or if they want to go faster, we charge like $9,000 a week. Uh, and that's the difference between like, one or two developers working full-time on your upgrade project. Cool. I was just curious because I've never actually like worked or even researched any like productized services. So that's cool. It's probably smart that you don't take on non-tested products. Yeah. I was actually talking about this with Ben Orenstein at MicroConf. Uh, we had breakfast one day and he was like, I'm not sure that's a productized service. I think you're just doing consulting with a very specific scope. And yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, it is in in a way it is custom software development where the scope is very much defined by did it did we get you to the next version of Rails and did anything break? Um so if everything worked your application is just going to continue to work maybe faster depending on the version of Rails we got you to. Um, but yeah, it, it in a way, it is kind of like custom software development just focused on shipping an upgrade. Yeah, I, I think that in that sense, though, like the product uh, aspect of it is like, here's a very concrete result we're going to give you. And if you pay us money, we'll give you that. You know, so it's it feels probably as a customer, like a product, because you're like, well, I need to get up to the latest Rails, pay these guys money, I get the latest Rails, there you go. So uh, yeah, it, it's a weird blend between the two, but I think it's a very like succinct selling point, which makes that a lot easier. And then you got me thinking like, you could probably offer for those clients that don't have a test suite, that could be another thing. Like, do you have an app without a test suite? We could do that for you as, you know, another kind of um, focus or something could be interesting. Might be awful. So <laughs> I just think it like, that's my like nightmare, but I don't know. I also like a good challenge. Yeah. You would, you would know a lot about their product when you're done with it. Not really. I mean, we try not to get that involved in business rules and uh, testing every single you know critical feature. We do it, but uh, only if it's not covered by their test suite. Um, I was yeah, sorry. I was, I was saying if you like did what Chris said and had to like write a test suite from scratch for a existing product. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you would you would know a lot about the business when you were done. Yeah, I. I'm so interested in like just finding a company or a freelancer that is interested in that sort of problem because every client that we turn down and we say like, no, you don't have enough tests. Uh, we don't, I mean, we can write tests, but it's not our bread and butter. Um, so we'd be happy to like maybe talk to another agency that just does that, you know, writes test suite and can tell us, okay, yeah, for an application this big, we are going to take like five to seven weeks to get you to 70% test coverage. Uh, I haven't found anyone yet. So if you know anyone, let me know. <laughs> yeah, it seems like really, I mean, there's so many apps without test suites and having a place that kind of was like focused on that would be really cool. So that's an idea for someone if they're listening. 
Um, I, I think that would go over pretty well. It might be pretty hard to do, but it could be neat. Um, yeah. So you're giving a, or you're doing a workshop on rails upgrades at Southeast Ruby, right? Yeah, I'm going to do uh, version 2.0 of the uh, Upgrade Rails 101 workshop. Um, version 1.0 was at RailsConf a couple of months ago, and it went great, and I learned a lot, and I'm going to apply a lot of changes for this new instance of the workshop. Cool. What do you cover in that workshop? It's... Uh, it's a lot about process and a lot about checking whether you are actually ready to start the upgrade. Uh, check whether you have a test suite, make sure that it runs. And then we talk a little bit about dual booting. So dual booting is this technique we, where you basically can run your application with two different version of, versions of Rails by just switching an environment variable. So we like to use that and we like to, well, I like to explain our process using this technique in the workshop. Uh, I use a sample application in the workshop. So we'll take it from Rails uh, 4.2 to 5.0. Um, and hopefully the attendees can learn how to apply this process to their own application so that next time they start a, a huge Rails upgrade project, they can take it one tiny upgrade or update at a time. Uh, that's nice. And what, I can't remember, there was quite a few changes between 4.2 and 5.0, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, we're actually um, working on one upgrade that is 4.2 to 5.0 right now. Um, yeah, I got to say, like, from 4.0 to 5, it's been challenging, and I we've seen a lot of struggles there. Uh, the good news is that from 5.0 to 5.2, it's gotten a lot better. Uh, deprecation warnings are very... Uh, very good. They guide you along the way. So if you can get your test suite to execute like 80% of your application code, you can probably, you know, grab the log files to, you know, find all the deprecation warnings that tell you, oh, look, this is going to explode if you if you bump, bump your Rails <laughs> version. So you should probably use this other way. Um, so in that sense, Rails is great, and it's gotten a lot better in terms of Rails upgrades. That's nice. Yeah, uh, that should be a good example to go from in the workshop uh, showing. It, was that the one uh, version change that had like the belongs to is now required on active record? Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, I think it is 4.2 to 5.0 where, yeah, every belongs to is required by default. Um, so yeah, one, one way to go about it would be to actually ship, we like to ship backwards compatible changes as much as possible in order to reduce the mass of code that um, the version bump pull request entails. So one thing that you could do without actually switching the version would be to explicitly say like, okay, this belongs to is optional or not. Uh, we actually have a shim for that. Uh, I've been meaning to like launch uh, or publish uh, an open source project with uh, Rails shims that you could use before actually bumping the version, but uh, it's in it's in the roadmap. I haven't published anything yet. Uh, that's cool. That sounds like it'll be useful because there was, I mean, that was one of the you know features that was always kind of like, well, I want to use that the Rails five defaults. But now I have to go back and, you know, fix forms or whatever it was that was, you know, incorrectly creating stuff um, that wasn't compatible with the new version and so on. So those shims would be useful. And they always give you like a config option to use the old style so your code doesn't break on the upgrade. But usually you don't uh, you don't ideally want to do that. You want to be using the new defaults and kind of embracing that. Otherwise, you have like a Rails 5 app that really acts like a Rails 4.2 app, which is kind of defeats the purpose a bit. Yeah. 
Yeah, another painful part of the the upgrades, at least from like four to four two, I think, was uh, strong parameters. Uh, we actually did launch a gem for that. It's called Rails underscore Upgrader, and it was you know it was started as an ambitious ambitious plan to be a tool to help you upgrade a bunch of code that you know, from 4.2 to 5.0 needs to change. And it's basically a search and replace. Um, but we did it, we started it. And for now, we only have the strong parameters code that could, you know, look into your controllers, look into your models and get you 95% of the way there to being strong parameter friendly. Oh, that's cool. That was, yeah, another one of those that was like, Okay, got to go rewrite, you know, tons and tons of code here and there. Just trying to find every case that you use that, um, which is probably a little bit easier if you use scaffolds. But if you wrote controllers and things from scratch, then you're going to run into strong params issues much, much more often. Yeah. um, Yeah, well, this was fun. Uh, we should probably wrap up since we're about an hour in now, but I'm excited to see your workshop at Southeast Ruby this year. I didn't go at RailsConf because um, we didn't really go to many talks or anything at RailsConf. Just chatting with people was fun. So Don't, don't give away our secrets. Uh, yeah, the hallway track, man. was the best. <laughs> No, I, I really enjoyed the hallway track as well. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I got to see you guys more on the hallway track than at the yeah at the talks. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope that people can can join us in Southeast Ruby and um, come to my workshop. Yeah, where can uh, people find you online? Uh, sure, yeah. So uh, people can find me on Twitter. It's usually uh, eTacworker. So E plus my last name, uh, where I'll just complain about stuff uh, and share stuff <laughs> about Rails upgrades. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't wait to see you guys in Southeast Ruby. It'll be nice to to maybe have some hot chicken or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Ernesto, are you staying until Saturday? Yeah, I'll be there until Saturday. Got a Santa's pub run. <laughs> Cool. Uh, you'll have to explain Santa's Pub for anybody that doesn't know. I think we probably talked about it before. It's a double wide trailer. I think they may have expanded it from I heard, but it's a karaoke bar that is Christmas themed year round. <laughs> it is a cash only joint, and it is. It might be the only reason I do Southeast Ruby and Nashville, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess uh, this year is uh, RubyConf in Nashville as well, so it's going to be a busy, busy town this year for Ruby-related stuff. All the Rubies. Did you see Ancient City Ruby is back? No, that's exciting. So we are we are no longer the only Southeastern conference, which is that's nice. great. For a while, it was just conferences dying off, and it's good to see some new ones popping up. all right well ernesto thanks again chris welcome back yeah if you guys uh enjoyed this episode you should give us a review on itunes uh we keep needing to plug that but we always forget when we're wrapping up so (laughs) i'm gonna try and slot that in (laughs) all right well i will talk to you guys later all right bye